Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3, and then 5 to 6, and then 8 to 12. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and women and those that, that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it and all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And we'll go to verse 8. So they read in, in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And, ne- and Nehemiah, which is the Tereshith, um, that's the governor, and Ezra and the and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. For all the people went their way to eat, to drink, and to send portions to make great mirth, because they had, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. You may be seated. For over a year when I preached here at Weavertown, I preached out of 1 Peter, and uh, I've chosen to take a break uh, from that series today. Uh, I guess I'll just be uh, frank with you all. The next passage is on the chapter 3 there, verses 8 and following, where it talks about brotherhood, and I believe that to be of the Lord. I was uh, processing um, those verses, and... uh, I'll confess that I'm a little raw um, right now, and I decided to simply um, kick the can down the road to the next time I preach. I feel like I have things to process in relation to that. Today, uh, I'm going to uh, preach uh, a series or one sermon from the book of Nehemiah, an overview of the book of Nehemiah. And my title is pretty simple, just Nehemiah. The byline is working and praying. Nehemiah is the last of the historical books. Uh, The book of Esther comes after it in chronological order here in the Old Testament, but it happened about 25 years prior to that. And the book of Ezra is sort of a companion book to the book of Nehemiah in the sense that it happens around the same time. So um, King Darius, of the, uh, the ruler of the Medes and Persians, gave um, 
support or agreement to have the Jewish people return to the land of Israel. And he gave them an edict to build the temple and the wall. And you can read about that in chapter 4, Ezra chapter 4, and you can also see what happened. So Zerubbabel and a bunch and an, um, a bunch of people from Babylon traveled back to, to Jerusalem, and they built a temple. It was a scaled-down version of the Davidic temple, the one that David built. And uh, it says that they started to build the wall, but they received opposition, and so they stopped. <clears throat> and about 12 years after that is when the, the book of Nehemiah begins. There was a group of people led by a man named Hananiah. He seems to have been a relative of Nehemiah. He left Jerusalem and traveled to Persia, Shushan the palace. And as they get to the Persian palace, the capital there, they are met by a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, who was the ruler of the Persian Empire at that time. His job, Nehemiah's job, was to serve food and wine to the king, perhaps other things as well. That was the job that Nehemiah had. So he had direct access to the most powerful person in the world at that time. And so this group of Jews gets to Shushan, the palace, and they tell Nehemiah about how bad things are back at Jerusalem in the land of Palestine. They told him about the distress that the people are in, in the promised land. And I, I'm choosing my words carefully there. It's, it's such a paradox. The people in the land of Palestine, the promised land, were in distress. And the text is just as clear as could be in chapter 1. There was ruin, and there was distress. There was um, a remnant in verse 3. They were in great affliction and reproach. I mean, if you were living in Jerusalem at that time, in the land of Palestine, life was the pits. It was, there was not much going for them. But because of this meeting between Hananiah and Nehemiah, one of the most amazing accomplishments of all time took place. The walls of Jerusalem were constructed. And not only were they built, but they were, it, the project was completed in 52 days. About a four and a half mile stretch of the old city, they completely built the walls and they were not just little walls. If you have ever traveled to Jerusalem, some of you have, and you've seen archaeologists or digs that they have found of Nehemiah's walls, and they're, they're massive, they're big. They're not just little walls. They're high, they're thick, and um, they did this without big equipment, I guess. They did it by hand, and heaved and shoved and found ways to to move big stones. And this happened mostly because God, it was in the timing and plan of God. But it happened also partly because of the leadership and the vision 
of this man named Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 1, I already referred to this, it talks about the condition of the physical walls. They were broken down and burned. And along with that, it says that the people were in reproach and in affliction. And you discover as you get through the book of Nehemiah, especially the last half of, of the book, you discover that the physical condition was also reflective of their spiritual condition. They were in a terrible place spiritually, not only physically, not only did they have a loss of protection in that the walls of the city were not there, but they, had, they, they were in reproach and distress spiritually as well. And I want to just point out something that has struck me um, as I prepared here. In our culture, and I, maybe it's just fine that it is this way, but I, I think sometimes before we ever undertake anything big, some big project, we, we sort of have the feeling that everything needs to be just in line and, and everything needs to be uh, smooth and dandy before we undertake some sort of big project. And like I said, there's probably there's some good to say about that. But here in Nehemiah, it's the opposite. There was a massive project that they needed to undertake. And they did. And because of, because of that project, revival broke out. Because the walls were completed. Because they worked hard. And because of the reconstruction that happened there, revival broke out. After the walls were completed. In chapter 1 here, there are several things that I want to point out. First of all, we see something about Nehemiah, <clears throat> about his character. Nehemiah was concerned. And it stands out to me that he asked. So this commission from Palestine and Jerusalem comes to Shushan the palace, and they are in contact with Nehemiah, and he asked. It tells us that he was a man who was concerned. And their answer was sort of, it feels to me as I read their answer, it was sort of an answer of desperation. And I've already talked about that. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. The people are in reproach and affliction. And it just seems like a gush of desperation and the beautiful city, the glorious city, the place where God had chose to put his name was in complete reproach. <clears throat> I submit to you that most projects that are ever started, most projects that are ever done and completed are born out of the fact that there's a problem, there's a need, okay? That's why we undertake projects, even in our church here at Weavertown. And the reason we undertake these projects is because there's concern. There's problems. And so Nehemiah was concerned, and he asked. He cared enough to ask. It's easy for us sometimes to just tend to want to absolve ourselves of responsibility. The less I know about a situation, um, it doesn't make me obligated somehow. But Nehemiah didn't close his ears in this case. He didn't, he didn't take that approach. He asked, and he cared and so he asked. Secondly, 
he had compassion. When Nehemiah heard how terrible things were in in Jerusalem, verse 4, he cried. He just broke down. It broke his heart to think about what was going on. He didn't only ask so that he could receive the information and file it into his list of files or he could be updated on the latest news. Nehemiah got the information that this commission gave him, this this group of people that traveled, and God used that information to break Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah cared enough to cry. He didn't laugh at their misfortune. It is very interesting to me to notice the word compassion. The word itself, if you break it apart, the word passion means suffering. When we talk about the passion of Christ, we're talking about the week that he suffered. We're talking about the time that Jesus spent on the cross. That's when we talk about the passion of Christ. Passion could mean energy and enthusiasm. That's often how we interpret it. But I think in most of your dictionaries, what you consult, the first definition is suffering. And the prefix com, C-O-M, means with, or in some cases, for. So when you have compassion for a person, you suffer with, or you suffer for. Nehemiah was moved, and he suffered as a result of that. He took upon himself to pray and fast, and the time is given We have the month Kislu mentioned in verse 1, and a little further down you have the month Nisan. Those are names for the month in the Jewish calendar, and there are four months. There's two months that separate Kislu and Nisan. So for 120 days, four months, Nehemiah prayed and fasted and wept about the terrible condition in Jerusalem. He, he was under anguish and suffering as a result of, of his compassion. And you know what's really interesting is that he prayed and fasted and mourned and wept for 120 days, but he completed the project in 52 days. He prayed and prepared twice as long as he actually worked. I think that's real instructive. Now, the interesting thing is that when you pray and fast, and you put yourself under suffering for or suffering with a situation, you better get prepared because I think it's probable that God is going to use you to be part of the solution, to be part of the answer. And that's exactly what happened here with Nehemiah. As Nehemiah is praying and fasting and weeping for 120 days, God built in him a burden not only about the problem, but to be a solution for the problem. Along with that, it is also interesting in the book of Nehemiah to note the amount of prayer that, is, that happens in the book. There are at least 10 recorded prayers in these 13 chapters. And Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We can see that. As he encounters something... He prays, and he just, I think he's the writer of the book, so he has the liberty to sort of express what he remembers or 
what he journaled or however. Maybe this is sort of a journal of Nehemiah. And so as he's writing about the events of that day or that week, he just responds in a prayer. The third aspect of confession, and that is the aspect of confession. We see that in chapter 1. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later on as well. But Nehemiah did what some of the other prophets had done. And as he's praying and fasting, he is reminded of the sin of his people. And he identifies with them. You can see in verses 5 to 8 how he prays and confesses the sins of the people. Was he involved personally? No. When Daniel prayed and confessed the sins of his people, was he involved personally? No. When Ezra and Paul, the Apostle Paul, prayed and asked that he would be accursed in order to save the nation or his people, his countrymen, in Romans chapter 9, These men, these great men of God, identify themselves with the sin. And I think it teaches us something about sin itself. I think it's something that I need to learn more about. That sin is not only an individual problem, but it is a problem for and in the community. There is a community that's connected when there is sin. And we can see that through the Old Testament and other passages as well. Nehemiah prays. He asked, he wept, he confessed, and especially identified with the sins of the people. The third thing that we can see here is that as he prays, you can see the conviction building in Nehemiah's heart. And when you get to the end of chapter 1, he is realizing that he has a responsibility, and he understands that he, God has laid on him the vision, and he is willing to talk to the king about this. And he prays from a heart of conviction. He understands that God has been strong in the past. And he believes that God will be strong in the future as well. And then fifthly, we can see that he is a prayer. He prays a prayer of commitment. He says, grant me favor in the sight of this man. He's talking about Artaxerxes. He says, I am the king's cupbearer. My responsibility is to go and talk to the most powerful man in the world, my boss, about the problem, the need in Jerusalem. So he does that. Nehemiah didn't pray that God would send someone else to Jerusalem. He made plans to go himself. He put things into place as if he was the answer to the problem. He embraced that. He cared enough to volunteer He was not a bystander. He entered into the process. So in chapter 1, it becomes clear that Nehemiah, to Nehemiah, that God had placed a call on his life. He embraces that, and that call was specific. Build the walls of Jerusalem. That was Nehemiah's call. And in chapter 2, Nehemiah talks to, gives a very prepared presentation. He talks to the right people. He talks to Um, Yeah, in the right way and in the right manner, he announces his goal, and he sets out to to have the correct conversations and to make the right preparations, and he is granted favor with the king, the queen also sitting by him. I think it's possible that was Queen Esther. The Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but I think it may have been. 
He receives favor to do what he's set out to do. And he has all of the plans in place. He's made the connections. He's had the conversations. He's organized it. Nehemiah is not a man who just wings it. He's got the preparations down. So the first thing he does when he gets to Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 11, is rest. I find that very instructive. He's a man who is burning with vision and the need for what needs to happen. But when he travels to Jerusalem, he rests three days. He didn't just jump in and begin flailing away at the project. He didn't arrange a meeting an hour after he got there. He first of all got his bearings. He made sure that he was in the correct state of mind, physically, mentally. And it's interesting to me to notice that it seems that the only people who noticed Nehemiah coming was Sanballat and Tobiah in verse 10. And they were grieved. Now, three days after Nehemiah is in Jerusalem, after three days of resting, Nehemiah makes a late-night um, trip through the city and specifically looking at the condition of the walls. Why does he do it at night? I don't know for sure. I think he's well aware that there's resistance to what he is about to do. He knew that there was going to be opposition. He knew that it had already been shut down once before. And for him to prowl and prod around in broad daylight would probably only raise suspicions and he would be prone to insults that he wasn't prepared for at that time. So he does it by night so that he doesn't have to explain his, to his intentions to everyone and especially his intentions to the enemy. Another reason I see in him doing this inspection is to see with his own eyes to do his own homework. And I think it's a mark of great leaders. He needed a clear picture for himself what needed to be done. That does not in any way mean that he didn't rely on others. It does not in any way mean that he was numb to the advice and counsel of other people around. I'm just, I'm just saying that Nehemiah prepared to do this, and one of the ways that he did was to see it with his own eyes. And it seems as if he's traveling along on his donkey, he's got this, he's making copious notes. This part is broken. This part can't, I can't pass through here. Here's a part that needs, and he does his own homework. In chapter 2, verse 17, he meets with the leaders of Jerusalem, and he just sort of blurts out what the leaders already knew. He gives them a sense of reality. There is a moment of truth he said unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. They knew that. This was an, a specific point of distress for these people. And he just blurts the truth out to them. The ruined state of a city. He basically says we're in a mess. We need to do something about this. One of the reasons I think that sometimes we need this jolt of reality in our lives is that we become sort of used sometimes to the conditions of our life. And I think it's possible that these Jews, they had now lived in this state for a number of years, maybe as long as 50 to 70, 120 years. I'm not sure how long it was, depending how you count. And they had gotten used to having it, having it this way. When 
Nebuchadnezzar came in, he destroyed the city, and it was never the same after that. They had gotten very used to the broken down conditions. They had become lethargic about their situation. And Nehemiah gives them a jolt, a dose of truth and reality. The situation had been with them for a long time, and they needed to be have a frank and conversation about what was going on. But I want you to especially notice the second part of his statement in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. He provides the challenge. He, needs, he leaves no doubt about what needs to happen. He leaves no doubt about what needs to take place. And not only is he doing it for their sake, he's doing it for the sake of God and the testimony in the community. In verse 18, I think he further proves his ability to lead. This man is a natural leader. Nobody, I think, wants to follow a man who leads, leads you into no man's land. That's not what Nehemiah was like. It's not the kind of person that he was. And he tells them about the incident in the palace. And he tells them about the preparations and the letters and all of the preparation that had worked out so remarkably. How he had gotten an audience with the king. And he just intrinsically motivates them to get on board with the plan to build the walls of the city. He doesn't use the words never or always. He doesn't give them you statements. He changes the pronoun to us and we. If you're a, liter a leader of any kind, these are lessons for us. I want you to notice what happened in verse 18. When Nehemiah gives them this statement, he talks about the good hand of God upon him. They said it. They said. They said, let us rise and build. That is just so fascinating to me. It is interesting to me that Nehemiah didn't need a new crew. He didn't need the help of the Samaritans and Sanballat and Tobiah and the surrounding cities to build the walls. He didn't need to import a crew from Babylon. He just need, he needed the old crew, and he needed the old crew to become rejuvenated. He used the people that, they all, that were already there. He used the people that they already had. And now we come to the third chapter. And here in this chapter, we have an incredible picture of Jerusalem. It is, in my, to my knowledge, it is the only place for sure in Scripture, and it may be even the only place in anywhere where there is literature that will tell you and give you a description of the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. And here in, in the old city of Jerusalem, he starts kind of at 12 o'clock. He starts with the sheep gate, and he goes the whole way, counterclockwise, the whole way around the city, and he names all the towers and the gates and the sections of the wall, they're all named. I think it's the only place in Scripture, and maybe the only place in, um, for sure, historical literature where this is done. And amazingly, not to our surprise, of course, but archaeologists have 
done some incredible digs, and they are at it right now. It's so, so amazing to follow archaeology and finding, see what they find when they dig in Jerusalem. And these, this is 100% accurate. Nehemiah chapter 3, all the sections, all the walls. One of the most interesting thing about some, the things about chapter 3 is the amount of proper nouns. There are over 100 proper nouns, that's names. Names of places, names of sections of the wall, names of certain gates, names of people. Over 100 proper nouns in 32 verses. Most of them are transliterated Hebrew names. I want to just extract a few things that I see. I'm not going to read this in public. I wouldn't be able to. But there are certain things that I'd like to point out out of this chapter. Nehemiah organized... Nehemiah organized this project certain different ways. We can see different ways, different modes of organization that, that Nehemiah used. He did it by cities, or groups of people from certain areas traveled, I think lived outside of the walls maybe, perhaps they lived inside the wall, but they were um, people that were uh, familiar with each other and their way of doing things. And maybe the place that they lived sort of gave them, gave them a subculture, or, and they worked together by cities in verse 3 and verse 13. He did it by occupation. I think this is really interesting. And, and it just shows the diversity and the difference that they had back then and that we have to, here today in our church. There were goldsmiths. These are people that I think probably, I picture a, a smith as a person who has big muscles, and a, a person who's, you know, swinging a big hammer and beating on metal or some sort of hot fire is right there, and there's just, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's hard work. It's tough work. If you're a smith, you, you're working. You're going to feel it. Your hands are going to be calloused. And then there's the perfumers. That sort of talks to me about some, hey, some sort of soft-handed people, you know, men or Maybe ladies, I don't know exactly for sure, but they were people that worked with, with herbs and um, did soft work. They were working, but they worked. They, they moved the stones. They got behind it, and they, they started building. He used the workers that he had. Some of them were merchants. Some of them were men of the plain. Again, I think I can think, think of, if I use... My imagination, I can think of different kinds of people that it's talking about there. And I might think of some specifics and maybe even think of some of you all when I think of that. But there's variety. There's diversity. No one was exempted. Everybody got behind those stones and moved them and started to work and build the wall. He did it by residence. We see that in verse 10 and verse 28 and verse 29. Numerous groups of people were working close to their house. I can see a lot of value in that. If you're building a wall that is right outside your house, you're going to be concerned about the well-being of that wall. You're going to be concerned about the wall being strong and sturdy, and it's going to actually provide protection for, I mean, if somebody, if there's a breach in the wall right there, your house is the first, it's right inside the wall. And so you're going to be concerned about the, the safety of, and the, the, uh, the appearance of that wall. It developed pride and ownership, a sense of ownership in that. And maybe a sense of competition. Um, let's get 
the section of the wall that's right by my house. Let's see if we can get that done first and, yeah, make sure it's good shape. He organized it by families. In verse 12, I think it's especially neat to notice that a man worked with his daughters. I like that. I think that's just pretty neat. And then, of course, it was by a performance type of construction. If you look at the different walls, the different gates, the towers, the sections of the wall, there was the dung gate. I mean, you don't have to have a lot of skill to build a sewer, you know? Um, if you're building the sheep gate, which was to the north there, the top side, and the towers of Mia and the towers of Hananiel, I think they're called, you're going to build a, a different kind of, of gate and a different type of construction. There was the fountain gate and the water gate. Those all required different sorts of, of construction. And Nehemiah organized it based on that. Another thing I want you to notice in chapter 3 is the repetition of phrases and words. So, so interesting. I could spend much more time on this. But one of the interesting phrases that comes in this chapter is the phrase, next unto him, after him. And he starts, like I said, around roughly 12 o'clock. After him, next unto him, next unto him, after him. And he goes the whole way around the city. That, that is such a beautiful picture of what needs to happen. Here at Weavertown. If we do that, we're going to be able to build the wall. Another phrase, another word that comes up frequently is the word build or builded, built, a, a form of that word. Eight times we see that. And the word repaired. Thirty-five times the word repaired is used. They didn't import materials from Babylon. They didn't outsource the project to Sanballat and Tobiah. They didn't use their materials. They used the old stones. They used what was already there. They repaired it. And they built a new wall with the old stones. <clears throat> and then I see Nehemiah in chapter 3 here praising the people who worked extra hard. And it's understandable that Nehemiah would recognize effort in other people because he was that kind of man himself. He gave it all he had. For him, leadership was work. And it meant sweat and it meant nothing to do, had nothing to do with status. It did not mean in any way that he was exempted from doing undesirable things that other people did. Leadership to Nehemiah meant that he was involved in the project. And I want you to notice the little bouquet that he throws to a man named Baruch or something like that in verse 20, who earnestly repaired the wall. He's the only person that's cited as having worked extra hard at what he did. There was something about the way Baruch worked that was different from other people. He gave it 110%. He did it earnestly, it says. Nehem, Baruch came to the job with excitement. He threw himself into the task that he had, and Nehemiah didn't miss it. I want you to especially contrast that with verse 5, where we have the Decoites, a group of people whose leaders, mind you, the nobles, the leaders didn't work hard at what they did. They didn't put themselves, they didn't try hard. They didn't work hard at what they did. It says they didn't put their necks to the work. That means, I think that sort of means their shoulder. They just didn't, they just didn't lean in. And Nehemiah noticed that as well. 
And you know what Nehemiah did with the Decoites? He just kept building. He just built anywhere. I, I feel sorry for Nehemiah that he has to deal with the Decoites. And I feel sorry for about the people that worked in cahoots or in side-by-side side with the Decoites. But you know who I feel especially sorry for? I feel especially sorry for the Decoites. Because when you get back to chapter 12, the wall is completed. Revival has happened. And they get up on the wall. The people are on the wall. The wall that Sanballat and Tobiah said wouldn't hold a fox. They, there's groups of choirs spread out around the city and they're shouting and singing and praising so loud that people could hear it for miles around. And I assume the Decoites were there. How would you feel to be part of a celebration like that and know, you know that you didn't put your all into it? Well, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are chapters about trouble and opposition, and I've chosen to make this the soft part of the sermon. There's things that could be said for sure, but there was problems within and without. It, it, was, a, it was a tough, tough situation that Nehemiah was in. There was Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and from without, and within, there was problems, there was lack of spirituality, there was a need for revival. In chapter 6 alone, there are seven attempts to stop the work. And there were problems that needed to be addressed, and so Nehemiah does. Nehemiah just doesn't pussyfoot around situations that need attention, does he? And he just leans in on those situations, and he does what needs to be done. I think it's just an, a lesson for me. <clears throat> One of the things that is especially, that is especially, especially interesting to me is to note the flow of the book of Nehemiah. And it's the word so, S-O. It comes up 32 times in the King James Version. So, it just sort of indicates a natural next thing. Nehemiah does the next thing, the, nat the natural response to the situation at hand. It conveys that what's happening in the heart of Nehemiah is, is the, the expected normal thing. And, and so he just does the next right thing. So I came to Jerusalem. So I prayed. So it pleased the king to send me. So I viewed the wall. So the people strengthened their hands to build the wall and so on. So he just did the next right thing. 32 times. So we built the wall, verse, chapter 4, verse 6. So the wall was finished, chapter 6, verse 15. I just encourage all of you, best I know, God is faithful. Every step, every step of Nehemiah's life was under the control of God. And conversely, Nehemiah trusts God in that situation. He's not kicking and screaming as God brings the next thing to his life. He embraces it and moves into that situation the best he can with God's help. Well, chapter 4, especially, there's a huge problem that happens within, and that's the problem of discouragement. I came across a funny story some time ago. 
And um, yeah, maybe it's just good for us to see some humor sometimes in these situations. There's a terrible problem of discouragement among the people when they're about halfway done. Halfway. You know, halfway is often not a real good place to be. They were halfway done, and they were tired of it and tired from it. They were discouraged. Here's the story. The story is told of a man who went to a little league ball game to watch the kids play ball. And he, took, he got there just a little bit after the game started, and he took his seat along the first base side of the field, and he sees one of the players, and he strikes up a conversation with him, and he, he asks what the score was. And the boy said, with a big smile on his face, he said, we're behind, 14 to nothing. And the man said, whoa, I mean, you seem pretty uh, happy, or uh, you don't seem down about that. And he said, oh, that's no problem. We haven't been up yet. And that's, that's sort of, yeah. In the New Testament, the word faint is used at least twice in different places in the New Testament. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for example, it's used twice. And the New Testament and the Bible in general is just clear. Let me just say it this way. Some, sometimes when you feel discouragement, you can just feel so unspiritual in that situation. But you know something? The Bible doesn't really depict discouragement that way. It doesn't really describe discouragement that way. There are times where some of the greatest and strongest people in the Bible face discouragement. Sometimes periods of time where they were discouraged. There's at least four things that I see here about discouragement. I really need a hustle. The discouragement was caused by the fatigue. It was caused by frustration, by failure, and by fear. I want to spend just a little bit of time of how Nehemiah overcame these. And I'm just going to spin through my notes for the sake of time. He did it with an increased vigilance. Watch and pray. I think the combination is really important in our group and for their group. Watch and pray. It's easy for us, depending on our personalities or our way of thinking or our background, to do one or the other. We need both. We need to watch and pray. And then Nehemiah overcame by reminding the people of their goal in verses 13 and 14. And he rallies the people around the Lord. In verse 14, he says, of chapter 4, he says, Remember the Lord. Reminds me of the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. Nehemiah has that same motiv motiv motivating speech here where he says, Remember the Lord. And Nehemiah overcame discouragement by just keeping on. I want you to especially notice in chapter 4, verses 17, or sorry, 15 to 18, the use of the words all and everyone. Nehemiah just kept on doing the next right thing. The tenacity of this man is so inspiring. 
You know what happens. Another way that Nehemiah overcame this discouragement was by carrying other people's burdens. And you know what happens when we're discouraged? We tend to just think about ourselves and how bad we have it. And I think the Bible is clear that we're not really meant to carry our own burdens, for sure not in that way, where we forget the Lord's promises to us. We're also meant to carry other people's burdens. And it's just something that I want to learn from. I think one of the best remedies for discouragement is to go and encourage others, encourage someone else. Sow some encouragement, and you'll find that encouragement has a way of coming back to you. Well, it says in verse, chapter 6, verse 15, that the wall was finished. Chapter 7, verse 1, the wall was built. And in chapter 8 and 9, revival breaks out. I mentioned this earlier. The revival seems to be in direct... The, the revival seems to come directly as a result of the hard work and them doing what God wanted them to do prior to that. There's, revival came by two ways. First of all, there was the focus on the Word. And these are as modern as could be. I think the word revival is sort of best summarized by a word that isn't a word. Rebible. If you want revival in your heart, get into the Word. Allow the Word to, to just dial into your life. Rebible equals revival. And then there's confession. In chapter 9, we have the longest recorded prayer in Scripture. And it's a prayer of confession. And I have a few things I want to say on this. Confession is not necessary because God needs us to do that in order for Him to forgive us. We do not need to confess so that He has the ability to forgive us. Confession is not for God's benefit as much as it is for ours. It is for our benefit that the Bible asks and calls us to confess. When we acknowledge and take responsibility for my failures, it allows me to consequently and consciously experience forgiveness. How can grace be poured out into my life if I'm in denial and I've even done anything inappropriate or wrong, or I'm in need of grace somehow? When we confess, we acknowledge and state our need for help from God. Confession is like letting God shine a light on what hinders or is hindering me from becoming the person that God created me to be, the person that I truly want to be. And I think one of the most prominent characteristics of sin is that it brings harm to ourselves and to others. And when we refuse to confess our sins, we are also refusing the healing that can come as a result of confession. James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and be healed. 
pray for one for another. Receive healing. The results of revival. Incredible joy. Chapter 8, verse 17, and chapter 12, verse 43. I described that a little bit already. Well, the walls are finished, and the book is almost done. The sermon is almost done. And you might think, well, they built the walls, they had revival, and they lived happily ever after. That's not how it worked. That's not how it works today. There's more work that needs to be done. And chapter 13, after all of this has gone down, there's still work to be done. Nehemiah encounters three more problems. And it's so impressive and inspiring to me how he deals with these reforms that were needed. In verses 14, verse 22, and verse 31, as he deals with these problems, his prayer is, Remember me, O God. I'm going to deal with the problem, he says. I'm using my words now. But remember me, O God. I'm going to deal with the problem. I'm willing to, deal, to dial into this. But remember me, O God. Help me. I need your strength. I need something that comes from beyond me. And my prayer is, that would be the prayer of all of us as we deal with the problems in our lives. <clears throat> Remember me, O oh God. Give me the help and strength that I need to do the job that you want me to do. Well, that's the book of Nehemiah in one sermon. If you're able, I invite you to kneel for prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I thank you for your word, the scriptures, and how they speak to us, and how they motivate us and encourage us to do what we need to do. And I ask, Lord, for your continual grace and guidance on our congregation, that we would do the next right thing, that we would do what is our calling to do. Give us the courage and the strength to look to you, to be inspired and motivated by men like Nehemiah and stories like we have before us. Help us to work together as a congregation. I pray that you would continue to move and draw us, first of all, to you. But also, I pray that you would inspire a sense of community in us and as we, our hearts would be drawn to each other. And I thank you, Lord, for your plan and purpose for us. I just... Um, commit the ordination and the process of the ordination this week to you. I just pray on behalf of our congregation and each family, each member of our church, people who are connected to our church in any way. I pray that Jesus' name would be lifted high and it would be a means of drawing attention to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.